Hi, I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC, the podcast where we take a book-by-book look back at the Babysitter's Club and what it means to us, how it's shaped us, and how it has built generation after generation of reader. This week, we are up to book 23, Dawn on the Coast. Um, So obviously, we're going to kick things off by telling you guys what the book is about, but I, I am just dying to know after last week's somewhat let down. Um, do you feel like we bounced back this week? What were your overall thoughts on the book? I think we did. Um, I'm not, I'll be interested to see if you feel the same way, but I think one of the major reasons that I really enjoyed this book was because it reminds me so much of the super special California Girls where all of the girls go to California with Dawn for two weeks. So it sort of was like yes. the preview the preview version or like, you know, the, the first episode and then, you know, or like the first movie and then like the sequel is when she, all of her friends come with her. And so it's like, they do a lot of the same things just like her family but then the next time that they all go to California like all of the girls are there so I I I think that's why I really liked it a lot because that's one of the super specials that I've read countless times (laughs) what about you yeah I definitely liked this one a lot and uh, that's interesting though but not for quite the same reason Um, I did like that aspect of it because I do remember that one pretty vividly as well Um, Mallory in particular I think that's where some of my Mallory annoyance stems from Mm -hmm. Um, maybe I'll have to like wait and reserve judgment and see now that I have a different take on Mallory, how that, how some of those, um, more obnoxious memory storylines, uh, play this time as an adult. For me though, I really enjoyed this one because I'm surprisingly again, found myself really identifying with Dawn. We'll get into it as we talk about, you know, the main lessons and themes for this story. But I thought while, um, it was a relatively small and contained book and it didn't, On the surface doesn't seem like a big issue. I think this uh, tackling the whole uh, not really knowing where home is, having blended families, having to, you know, sort of leave parts of yourself in different places. I think that's going to resonate with a lot of kids, Um, kids who moved, kids who have gone through divorce, kids who, um, you know, maybe are leaving pieces of themselves uh, behind a little bit. And um, and I thought that was really simple but beautiful. So let's break down what actually happened before we um, start getting too far ahead of ourselves as we we are want to do. So I'll start things off by reading the back of the book. So as I mentioned, this is book 23, Dawn on the Coast. It was published in April of 1989, and we're once again in Anne M. Martin territory. Dawn can't wait for her trip to California. Besides all the sun and fun, it's her first visit since her brother Jeff moved back to live with their dad. California is even better than Dawn ever remembered it. The beaches are beautiful, Disneyland is a blast, and Californians eat healthy food. Plus, Dawn's best friend Sunny even started her own babysitter's club. After one wonderful week, Dawn begins to think she might want to stay in California, like Jeff. Dawn's a California girl at heart, but could she really leave Stony Brook for good? Pretty straightforward. Yeah, pretty straightforward and a pretty, I certainly hits on what was important for me about this book. So um, why don't you give us the actual what ha- lowdown on what happened and we can go from there. Well, like you said, this is a pretty straightforward book. So I don't know that my summary will be that different from <laughs> the back of the book. Hopefully there's a little <laughs> bit funnier commentary. I can't remember what I wrote in this one. So I will be figuring it out with the rest <laughs> of you while you hear me say it. Um, okay, so the Don specific plot. 
Dawn spends her two-week spring break in California visiting her dad and brother. She has good and bad experiences on her flight out to the West Coast in the forms of a nice and helpful seatmate and an obnoxious and unhelpful stewardess who gets there safely, arriving at the airport to be welcomed at the gate by Jeff and Mr. Schaefer. And Sonny. I forgot to put that in my summary. <laughs> uh, she's, she spends her two weeks doing fun California things like going to Disneyland and the beach, along with hanging out with her California best friend, Sunny, who started her own babysitting club, the We Love Kids Club, or I guess the We Heart Kids Club. I always said We Love Kids Club. What did you do? Oh, I always said We Heart. Okay. Because in the for everyone who is not looking at the book, the in the actual text of the book, it's We with a heart, a literal, a literal heart kids club. So... I guess We Heart Kids Club is what we'll be calling it. So, the We Heart, Ki- we Heart Kids Club. <laughs> Attending a few meetings leads Dawn to taking a couple jobs babysitting for her neighbors, two kids named Clover and Daffodil. <laughs> There's lots of discussion of how great California is and how much she loves it and how she truly is a California girl at heart, which, of course, leads her to contemplating whether maybe she should move back like her brother did. Ultimately, Dawn decides that she belongs in Connecticut with her mom and the babysitter's club and all of their babysitting charges and realizes she does have two homes and doesn't have to choose between them, really. So the babysitter's club generally in this book, the babysitter's club sends Dawn off to California with a sleepover at Christie's house, and then we get a sporadic check-ins with the girls based on their po- based on their postcards to and from Dawn in California. Claudia and Marianne babysit for the Newtons, the Feldmans, and the Perkinses, so the parents can have a joint date night where Rob Feldman decides babies don't count in his anti-girl stance and is surprisingly helpful with them because he read a book called Babies in Space. Jesse babysits for the Thomas Brewer kids, and she and Karen freak themselves out falling for Sam's pranks to trick them into believing that old Ben Brewer is after them. And Christy and Mallory babysit for the Pikes, where they serve the winning combination of ravioli and coleslaw for lunch and make invisible notes using milk and an iron. The end. (laughs) So, yeah, like you said, the, the, the main crux of this is obviously Dawn on the coast. Hey, shocker, that's what it's called. But, um, you know, Dawn going through that sort of back and forth, do I belong in California? Do I belong in Connecticut? What's my real family? What's my real home? Where do I belong? And the babysitter's club themselves, you know, the rest of the babysitter's club is all just sort of like, oh, hey, we're here babysitting in Connecticut. Like, here's a here's a quick snapshot of what we're doing. And it doesn't really impact what's going on with Dawn. Like a a lot of times there's at least a little bit of crossover here. It's like there's Dawn's story and then there's everybody else just sort of chilling, waiting for her to come back from California. Yeah, this is definitely the most disconnected. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not necessarily true. I'm trying to remember. There were, we've commented before when the main plot is something very interior that there have been a couple of times where the B plot is just like, oh, and also people are there. So I think the last time we actually talked about that was when Christy, when Christy started The Crushers. I can't remember what book it was. What the book- Christy and the Walking Disaster. Thank you, it was. And a lot of the other babysitters were just sort of, oh, and they were also there. I think we called out Claudia in particular. Mm-hmm. And I had sort of similar feelings about that this one at first. But as I thought about it, the more I really enjoyed those little little interludes because I think they played a really important part of Dawn's thought process. Like I think it would have been harder for her or it would have seemed less organic for her to decide to go back to Connecticut at the end if she hadn't been having those little reminders of what she has back there through the club in those um, postcards, letters, and stories that she was getting from them. So I think while it doesn't... I don't know that it was like that really redeems it in terms of them tying thematically together. 
But I do think that they played an important part in the overall story that was being told, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, especially when, you know, when Christy and Mallory are babysitting for the Pikes and Nikki's having a really tough time and he, you know, asks if he can go hide in his special hiding place, which is Dawn's um, secret passage from her barn between her barn and her house and you know he and Christy have a little bit of a heart to heart when she has to go find him because he's been gone for you know 45 minutes or an hour and it's time to come home um and you know he he's talking about you know sort of feeling left out and how he misses Dawn because he they have a you know a connection and you know he then writes her his own postcard you know it's it's sort of nice I think you know we we do get to see that it's not just you know, Dawn thinking about her friends and her mom and, you know, that's the only thing that would draw her back. I think, you know, especially the story with Nikki and hearing about that, I think that really sort of reminds her that there are, you know, obviously all of the babysitters love all of the kids that they babysit for, but each of them does have certain kids that they have more of a strong connection with. And I feel like Dawn and Nikki is one of those types of connections, you know, Mm -hmm. like Stacey and Charlotte Johansson and Christy and um, Jackie Rodowski and Claudia and Jamie Newton, like all of those sort of closer bonds. I think it, it sort of helped that that was, you know, the third story that we heard back from back in Stony Brook. And it, you know, maybe sort of helped push Dawn over the edge. You know, she had heard the stories about all the other kids. But then, you know, hearing a story specifically about Nikki was like, oh, right. I really, you know, I love that kid. I couldn't ever, I couldn't not babysit for him anymore. And obviously everything plays out together. And it's all, it's not just Nikki that makes her want to come back to Connecticut. But, you know, it sort of keeps building because once she gets to California, she's immediately like, oh my God, it's so warm here. It's so nice. The beach, everyone eats healthy and, you know, I can go to Disneyland anytime. And so she sort of gets overwhelmed with the, 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 the pros of California. And, you know, I, I think at one point during the story, she realizes that she hasn't even thought about her mom or Marianne or the kids or the rest of the babysitters club at all the entire day. And she's sort of like, huh, I wonder what that means. And that sort of makes her think maybe I belong in California, but you know, by getting these reminders over the course of the book, it does sort of help help us remember why Dawn maybe doesn't belong in California. And it helps Dawn remember for herself that even though she's a California girl, she maybe doesn't necessarily belong in California right now. Yeah, I, I think that that's sort of the key point there, because I, I don't think the takeaway is that she doesn't belong in California. I think the takeaway is that she could belong in either place. And she's choosing for right now that Connecticut is where that place is. She wants to be for her. Um, And this is where I really started to identify. So about seven years ago at this point, I moved out to Vegas for a number of years. I know we've talked about that because we started this when I was still out there as a way to stay connected. And being in Vegas and really falling in love with the town and really building a home and a family and a community there, I completely empathize with Dawn in this book because I know what it feels like to have two places that really feel like home and to really feel torn between them. And I especially empathize with the, you mentioned it earlier that like when she's in California and amongst all the California things, it starts to crowd out a lot of the Connecticut stuff. And that is very true to my life experience. Um, In fact, just this week we went for a socially distanced walk outside. And I've talked about how, um, you know, I've been back for about a year and a half now and parts of my time in Vegas, I've already started to take on sort of a dreamlike form. Um, And that's when I was there, Cleveland felt that way to me. It somehow feels less real in a way. 
Um, so I really, I, I was really with Dawn on that journey and really appreciated that it spoke to a really pretty nuanced theme, if you will, I guess, that there is no one right or wrong place. There is no, I guess, version, perfect version of home, that home is what you make it and that some people have homes that are not as simple and as structured as, as other people's. And I really, really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was really nice. And I think that might be part of the reason why – And. Obviously, this book clicked a lot more for you because you have that connection. I was going to say that's maybe why I focus more on like, this is fun, Don's in California, because like for me, I don't like I don't have that issue, you know, at least not in the same or at Mm -hmm. least not in the same significant type way that you or Don obviously here is having, you know, because like I I live, you know, less than an hour from where I grew up. I went to college in Dayton, but like I went to law school back in Cleveland. And so it's I've I've been in my home base from my childhood, from my birth, most of my life. And I I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I think it's, it, it's a thing. But so I've never really had to have that same level of consideration. I mean, obviously, I, I don't live at my parents' house anymore. I don't live in the home that I grew up in. They do still live there. So it's sort of strange to go back to their house and things have changed. They just, you know, remodeled the kitchen um, that, that, you know, the kitchen had been basically the same my entire life. And then they just remodeled it right before COVID hit. And so we went over there to, you know, sit on their back porch. And I, you know, went into the house, use the bathroom and walk through the kitchen. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> like this isn't my house. <laughs> I mean, right. but it's not my house because I have my own house that I live in now because I'm an adult and I have, you know, my my own family that I've created with Jeff and in Indiana. And so it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I get the feeling, but I definitely, it didn't, the it didn't bring up as much in me that it obviously did in you or would bring up in people who have had similar experiences where, you know, there's been that big change in, what home is or where home is and you know having to make those considerations in a much more broad and maybe not meaningful but um more significant way for sure yeah i definitely seriously emotionally connected with this one got had the tears the waterworks going a couple of times um and again i don't know how much of that is like real life bleeding in making some of you know the emotion feel very heightened um, but I definitely had had that very strong emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. And that was just about the moving piece. Like I really, um, the part that I don't have any emotional connection to and that I, I know you don't either is that um, added complexity of her having to deal with the split of the parents. Right. Of feeling like whichever parent she chooses, somebody loses. And I really, I do want to point out Dawn's parents, for me, looking back on it, were really sort of non-entities. I didn't really remember anything about either of her parents other than that her dad stayed in California and her mom eventually marries Marianne's dad. That's mm-hmm. pretty much what I got. So so rediscovering mom's Dawn's mom having much more of a personality, good or bad, depending <laughs> on which book we're reading, was an interesting insight. And this, to see that her dad really is like very caring, very involved. Like he, he, it wasn't like he fucked off to California. Like that's where they lived. And if anything, Don's mom is the one who uprooted and, and moved them across the country without knowing anyone for herself and for her own reasons. And I think that's interesting. And I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's entirely unselfish, but at the same time, I'm certainly not a parent and I have no 
desire to wade into that particular, you know, what makes a good parent, what makes a bad parent conversation because, oof, I, I don't think there are any winners in that game. Um, but I think that, you know, people just need to do what they need to do. And sometimes that leaves kids in positions where they have to make hard choices like this, where they have to think about that. Um, and and clearly the loss of Jeff is something that has been really um, big for Dawn as well. So I think that I really appreciate that we're getting this story at all. Mm-hmm. And and it definitely, um, I think that there's a lot of, it's just a fun book too. Like, so if, if you weren't getting all of that out of this reading through the first time, you still are getting an enjoyable reading experience, which is really mm-hmm. nice. Because sometimes it feels like if they miss the message, then the whole book just sort of feels like a, what what was this for? Um, whereas this one was, if if you don't have one of those connections and you just got to, you know, have the fun in the sun, the, like you said, the preview of the super special, sort of the super special light, if mm-hmm. you will. But I love that there is this real thoughtful consideration of what it must be like to be in that, in that situation available for kids to read, to, to put themselves in, in, in that position for modeling something slightly different than what we normally talk about. Um, and I think it still goes back to maturity, our fa- very favorite mm-hmm great idea but a different kind of maturity and and i i do think it definitely takes a a level of maturity to get to where dawn does in the end and recognizing that it is about having two homes it's not about losing anything it's about having both and i think that that to me was sort of the thing was that as i was wrestling with whether or not to move back from vegas i kept thinking to myself you know whichever way i pick i'm gonna lose and i was like i have to reframe this to Whichever way I pick, I'm going to win because I now have two places mm-hmm. that I love, two places that are, are that feel like home, that I have family and community with. And then, of course, I, I moved back here and it's 2020 and I can't travel and I haven't been able to right. <laughs> to be back to Vegas. So I, 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 w- I think a big part of my uh, tears on this one were the fact that, you know, she's talking about it's just a plane right away. And I'm like, I know, but it's one I can't take right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Anyway, that was part of that was definitely part of my emotional response. Yeah, definitely understandable. So let's dig into the California of it all. Um, this was the place where, if I had to nitpick with this book, it feels so very surface California. Like it almost doesn't feel like a real place. It feels like a vacation, which I guess is kind of the point. But like, really, all we see of California is Disneyland and the beach. That's and then everybody's blonde. Um, so and and it, and of course eats avocados, but it just it felt very much like what are the first five things that people list when they think about California, or even more accurately did back then, um, because I think one thing that kept striking me is they kept going on and on about how stereotypical stereotypically California dawn is, and I don't know that that's the image that everybody has of California anymore. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean I would say in 1989 that was definitely you know, blonde, blue eyes, eats healthy, wants to go to the beach, loves the sun, like that, that was California, you know, that's, that's because I think, and maybe and this maybe is getting a little like, I don't know, granular or, <laughs> uh, you know, in my own head, but like, we didn't have, at least everyone didn't have like normal access to things like the internet and Twitter and mm-hmm. you know there I, I think I'm sure there was cable TV but it wasn't the kind of cable TV we have now so I think that it was maybe not as easy for people living in Connecticut or Ohio for example to have a 
a well-rounded sense of what California actually was because the only things we saw were things like oh you know step by step went to Disney World I guess that was Disney World but you know like mm-hmm. things like that where it's like you you only see the the vacation type things that Dawn is doing here it's like people go to the beach people go to Disneyland um you know everyone has blonde hair and likes avocados you know like I think that is sort of the thing is like we didn't have enough exposure to more of California because even you know California is a huge state it has all different climates it has mountains it has deserts it has the beach it has rivers it has everything it has you know the northern part of California while still very nice is not like you know, 80 degrees in the middle of the winter and not, I mean, I'm sure that it's LA is not different. either, but yeah. like, I, I, you know, everyone's sort of envisioning of California from 1989 and even probably even the nineties, um, you know, what it was like LA basically, or, you know, around LA because that's where Disneyland was. And, you know, that's where movies were set and that's where movies are made. And so I think that it's just mm-hmm. the fact that we didn't have, as much easy access to information or and we weren't inundated with as much sort of direct content that would show us a broader world and i think a lot of people maybe didn't seek out a broader world because obviously the information was available it's not like california was a black right. hole and you could only know if you live there or something like that but um it, it is sort of funny that you know writing this book is like dawn's from california she's going to California and she's going to do the things that, you know, everybody does. And it's like, what about going hiking? I mean, even in LA, I know people go hiking and not everyone's blind. And, you know, (laughs) it's sort of like, you know, like they reference like going to a Mexican restaurant, but like they don't know any Hispanic people. Exactly. You know, it's sort of like, it's, yeah, it's definitely the most like sort of cliched 1980s version of California you could imagine. <laughs> well, it just even felt more like a tourist version of California because I feel like going to Disneyland and going to the beach, the two things that they explicitly call out on their very busy week, other than babysitting, are both things that tourists would do. And yeah, I, I would buy that as a 13-year-old girl, you know, going to visit home, that Disneyland and the beach would be on the itinerary. But I feel like she would probably also be like, oh, there's this, you know, great s- spot that we go to that, you know, is not about where everybody else heads to. I I don't know. Maybe I'm nitpicking for a kid's book. But I just, um, I feel like partially it's because there is such a sense of place in Stony Brook. Yeah, but like, is there? (laughs) But like, does Connecticut, and I'm obviously about to sound like a huge asshole, but like, does Connecticut have like, like, what's the cliched Connecticut thing? You know, like, because I don't even know if we get that from the Babysitter's Club. It's like, yes, they're they're in Connecticut, but like, what does that actually mean? That they're sort of close to New York because Stacey can drive there. Like, I don't know. Yeah, so what I was going to say is that it, like, there is a sense of place, but it's not a, a sense of place that I'm coming to think about it that has anything to do with Connecticut. Like, Stony Brook is a very, I think, fully formed place. We have an idea of what that town is like. We have an idea of who the people are, what the s- scope of it is, etc. But it doesn't have a sense of place in terms of, like, geography within the country it could be like anywhere usa like you said the the connecticut aspect is just sort of because it's close to new york i guess um and because it makes sense that a bunch of wealthy families would live in that area i guess um but otherwise connecticut doesn't really 
you know, play a role, which is why it's so, I think, so fascinating that the, there is such an emphasis on the California, California, California of it when you're right. It's not actually all of California. It's basically mm-hmm. L.A. And even at that, like a very um, narrow focused part of L.A. as well. You know what it makes me think of immediately is um, son-in-law. That's I don't know why that's always what I go to for that vision of <laughs> 90s era California. Yeah. Um, I love that movie. Um, I, I think I was thinking about that because I was watching um, Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor. And it, that those are both, um, what's her face? The Carla Gugino. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how you say her I name? I think it's Gugino. I always say it wrong. Gugino. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are both Carla Gugino. And I, I had such a crush on both her and Polly Shore in that movie. I was a very strange child. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, I she had a she got a butterfly tattoo on her ankle. And I just thought, oh, she is gorgeous. <laughs> um so anyway, that was a weird sidebar into my adolescence. But that was like sort of the like pinnacle of my California fascination, I guess. Did you have any sort of, because I know we've talked about our New York um, interests. Did you have it, were you a California obsessed as well? Or was that just too far away? Yeah, California was not a thing I ever thought about. I, I had never even been to California until I, my 30th birthday. Yeah, I didn't, I'd never really been um, until I was in my 20s, and that was like piggybacking off another trip. Um, but then I did go quite a bit when I was in, you know, Vegas. It was right there. So that became sort of different. But yeah, it was just, I, I think it was too mm-hmm. far away, come to think of it. Like it just seemed like a completely different world. And I think books like this sort of reconfirmed that um, because it, it definitely, because he just made it such an eff- emphasis on on how it was different, I guess. Um, so one of those big differences was definitely in how they approached, um, maybe not babysitting. I think they both, both sets of girls care about kids in the same overly um, important way that we have noted the Babysitter's <laughs> Club does. But the, but the clubs definitely f- have a very different feel. Um, so why don't you fill us in on the... We Heart Kids Club, or yeah, that's what we decided. The We Heart Kids yeah. Club. I mean, I guess the the biggest difference, and I think it's sort of interesting that we're getting this right after the book where we talked about how each of the girls is very, you know, perfect for their role within the Babysitters Club, and how you kind of need a Christie to run the Babysitters Club. I mean, I guess the the thing that's sort of the the biggest difference would be that the the We Heart Kids Club is just so laid back. And I think that sort of is tying into the whole, you know, laid back Californian thing. But like, so there's Sunny, who's, um, you know, Dawn's California best friend and Jill and Ashley. I don't remember. They were such non-entities. I have no recollection of them at all. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So there's three girls in the We Heart Kids Club. There's no officers. There's no, you know, like bylaws or, you know, anything sort of most of the stuff. Well, I guess there's a lot. It's it's weird because like so much of what the Babysitter's Club is about, the We Heart Kids Club has also done. But then there's so much of the Babysitter's Club that the We Heart Kids Club is like, no, why would we do that? So I guess maybe I'll just sort of list a few yeah. of the things that are the same and different. So um, similarities, you know, they obviously have meetings three times a week, 5 to 5.30. Um, you know, people call during those meetings and get babysitters. They, 
I think they have an appointment book. Maybe not. I don't remember. I mean, I guess that, no, that's sort of. it doesn't even sound like it. Yeah. So they're they're just very laid back. They do have kid kits. Um, but I guess that's sort of. The, the things that are similar are, like, the big things. But then when it comes to how the club is actually run, you know, they don't – when someone calls to make it a, a – you know, find a babysitter, they just sort of cover the mouthpiece with their hand and say, like, who wants to take this job? Whereas the babysitter's club, they say – you know, like, they write down the information about the job and who it's for and all the time and everything. They hang up. They figure out amongst themselves who's going to take the job. Then the person who answered the phone calls them back and says, oh, Christy will be taking the job. She'll see you that day or whatever. Um, you know, they don't have a club notebook. They don't have an appointment book. Um they definitely don't eat ring dings from underneath Claudia's bed. You know, I think <laughs> at the first meeting that Don goes to, Sunny goes downstairs and gets like apples with peanut butter on them. And Don's so excited because it's finally a healthy snack. And I mean, those I'm sure that I'm missing something, but those are sort of like the big similarities and differences. And it's just sort of funny that, you know, obviously the We Hard Kids Club is running fine and they have plenty of people that they babysit for. So I guess we were maybe a little bit off that you don't have to have a Christie, but I think in Connecticut with the way that the babysitters club has been running, you definitely need someone to keep it on that course. Whereas in California, the We Hard Kids Club is sort of like, eh, we got this. We're, we're figuring it out as we go. We got the framework, but we're going to sort of tailor it to what we want to do. And I think it's sort of funny to see that difference in, you know, California versus Connecticut with the respect to babysitting clubs specifically. I totally agree because I think one of the things that I liked most about this is that it wasn't like um, some kind of condemnation of how the We Heart Kids Club does mm-hmm. things. Like it could have been very easy. Like for a minute there when um, when Sunny brings Dawn in as a surprise to show her, I was like, ooh, this could have gone very poorly. Mm-hmm. And like I remember that it didn't because I remember, like I mentioned in the last book, that you know we eventually get books from Sunny's perspective when Dawn moves back to California eventually – we get a series of books of you know about the iHeart Kids Club and and their adventures there. So I knew that you know obviously that was a thing um, that was sticking around. But my very first instinct was, ooh, what do you, how do you think that surprise would have gone over if it was Christy? Probably not well. <laughs> well, I mean, we have seen all. that happen when um, I think is it when Mallory brings Jesse or. When Marianne brings Dawn for the first time, I know in the show when Mal or when Marianne brings Dawn for the first time, Christy is not pleased. But I don't feel like it goes exactly that way in the books. But I there have definitely been situations no. where Christy is surprised at babysitters club meetings, and Christy is not a surprise girl. <laughs> so you know, if, if Sunny and no. the other two girls were anything like Christy, it could have gone very very poorly, like you said. Right. Well, I was more even thinking like if. If Sonny had brought Christy in and being like, look, we modeled a club after what you did, I, I think Christy could eventually get around to being flattered, but I think her first instinct would be, you stole my idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, and you're doing it wrong. So I, I appreciated that we did get Dawn's perspective and that Dawn was able to appreciate what it is that they do and allowed us to appreciate it at well, that it didn't become sort of a, the babysitters club does it right and they right. do it wrong, even though they do things differently. I think the biggest difference, and I, I, I think that they sort of allude to this, if even if it doesn't isn't like super super explicit. But the difference is the level of passion behind it. Mm-hmm. I think, um, like the 
Connecticut Babysitter's Club, our girls, take it incredibly seriously, um, you know, to a degree that, like we said, we've joked about. And I was even made notes of that in this one that, like, Dawn's on two-week vacation to California and she cannot wait to babysit for neighbors. Right. I Like, that's um, stretching the bounds of some believability there about, you know, what level of importance babysitting is in their lives. Uh, but for our girls, as they're written, whether that's true to life or not, babysitting is it, the be-all and the end-all. And I really just don't get that impression from Sunny and the We Heart Kids Club. Like, they're fine. They Don notes a number of times that they don't get nearly the number of calls that the BSC does. They don't have nearly the number of clients. They're not taking on big projects like weddings mm-hmm. or day camps or things of that nature. Um, and they don't seem to have any interest or desire to do that. So I think... Um, it's really great that they allow the space for both of those versions of that club to exist. And I, I was noting that throughout. And then, you know, on the electronic copies, we get the note from Anna Martin in the back. And she notes that, you know, at the time she was writing this, she had heard from over 200 people across the country that they had started their own versions of the clubs. And I think that that in a um, subtle way, this book was sort of a, a blessing mm-hmm. of that, of, you know, yes, you you take it and you make it be whatever it needs to be for you and and for your life. Um, so I now feel far uh, better about my <laughs> previous copyright infringement. Got that sign off from Anne. <laughs> um, making it something special. But yeah, I really like that they um, that they didn't try to turn it into a competition. Mm-hmm. That it like the Dawn's decision was not about which club is better, um, which I think a lesser book may have done you know try to pit that against each other in a way and it never really goes there which is really nice yeah but I think one thing that is another I think they did it subtly very well too but it was definitely something that resonated for me was when Dawn was thinking about you know she had to make this hard decision and she was wondering who to talk to about it and she recognizes well if I talk to Sunny Sunny's going to tell me to stay no matter what she's going to focus on I need to be in California but she trusts that if she talks to Marianne, Marianne's going to recommend whatever's best for Dawn, whatever in Dawn's best interest, even if it's not in Marianne's. And I had such a huge flashback to me calling you the morning after I'd been offered the job in Vegas. Um, unsure, should I do this? Should I not? I just had gotten settled and really liked my life in Cleveland. And I knew the same way that Dawn knew that you were going to be the person that was going to be supportive and tell me the truth and tell me to go if that was actually the right thing Mm -hmm. to do and sure enough that's exactly the conversation that we had um so that just made me feel very warm Mm -hmm. inside and it was such a lovely moment as someone you know as especially after last book where I talked about how identifying with Christy was a bit of a trial (laughs) in that one (laughs) um it was nice to see some of your best qualities reflected in Marianne for me so I don't know if if you had that same moment, but it definitely mm-hmm. jumped yeah, out for me. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Since I, that's sort of like the biggest thing that was sort of hit home for me or, you know, hit close to home. Because like I said, the the moving away or making decisions about where to go was not really any – that's never anything I've had to do. But I have been – you know, obviously Dawn doesn't actually have that conversation with Marianne. But if they had had that conversation, I definitely – have been in Marianne's shoes having that conversation with you. And so, um, yeah, that, that did resonate with me. So it's fun to, to see little pieces, even if I can't have the whole story be <laughs> something that hits home for me. 
yeah, I just overall, I really liked this one. It was, um, I think I keep coming back to the word gentle. Mm-hmm. It was gentle in a way. Like it was just a fun, a fun little romp that had some some deeper things to think about that just sort of highlighted everything that we love about these girls. You know, their their thoughtfulness and their um, kindness, I guess. Uh, you know, Dawn is ultimately, I, I think, one of the, the kindest characters because she really does think about all of her actions in context with mm-hmm. um, everyone else, how they're going to fit in. And I, I definitely think that's sometimes not the healthiest, as I've pointed out in the past. But I do think that it is one of the things that makes her so lovable is that she really is um, has such a big heart. And, and that is, goes a long, long way, and especially in, in simple mm-hmm. stories like this. Definitely. Um, what do you think? On to some random thoughts? Yeah, I think we've touched on, again, because this was sort of a pretty straightforward book, I think we've touched on all the our great ideas related to the book. So I think, yeah, random, random thoughts. Let's dive in. <laughs> One thing I noted I this these books have sort of a weird relationship with outside media properties like Babies in Space that you mentioned in your summary. I was immediately like, that's a great idea for a book. Totally doesn't exist. Um, we had the return of Paris Magic. Again, it doesn't actually mm-hmm. exist or sort of now it does in the in the TV version. But then on the flight home, they're playing adventures in babysitting, which while very on the nose absolutely is real and exists well and all the disneyland stuff same thing oh i did enjoy how they just left star wars off the um description of star tours they just said a flight Flight simulator simulator. and i was like yep you're you're kind of missing the point of that one of the flight simulator but sure (laughs) i mean yeah i guess i mean the the version that existed in 1989 was less closely related to star wars i mean it obviously was a star wars ride but now you're actually like yes. in like you know the battle of crate or exegol or you know on That's naboo true. or in coruscant um whereas like in the old version every time you wrote it, it was the same and like c3po wasn't your pilot and so it was very much just like yeah, we're totally in the same universe as Star Wars. <laughs> so you're right. You it could did feel much kind more of get on. away with it. Yeah, I mean, it obviously, if you, if anyone, you know, if Dawn were a real person explaining to someone what Star Wars was, she would obviously reference Star Wars. So it's a little bit. It is a little weird that she just calls it like, oh, this really cool flight simulator ride. Like, yes, technically, but Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I just sort of had assumed that, OK, maybe we just can't get licensing. And so that's why they don't mention real stuff until we get to the end. And then they do mention a real one. And like we had they had mentioned, I realized they'd mentioned real movies pretty mm-hmm. regularly. But everything else that they mention, uh, that's not true. I guess they've mentioned a couple of books that are yeah. real. And now TV I, shows. I can't remember which one. But yes. So there's sort of a weird mix. I wonder what that what that is because I guess I mean babies in space is really particular I guess that makes sense as something out of an imagination but other times I'm like like Paris magic why is it so important that it's a Broadway show that doesn't exist why couldn't it been have been you know cats right. or something who knows I'm sure we'll never know but it's I, I'm just always fascinated by those types of right. decisions because I feel like there's probably reasoning behind it I just don't know what it right. is yeah it would be much more it would be much easier if it was either like all made up properties or all real properties but like the mix is a little bit strange or like the lack of reference you know you sort of like reference around it like star tours and star wars but like 
babies in space is completely made up. And I don't know if maybe that was just because at the time there was nothing that Anna Martin could find that actually would give, you know, an eight-year-old boy knowledge about babies such that he would actually want to, like, help take care of babies. But I thought that, whatever it was, I thought that was really cute. I thought, first of all, the the book idea for babies in space was adorable. And second, I liked that that girl hater actually turned out to be, like, really great at babies because books had tricked him into it. Um, because I, I I just love that message that, you know, books are such a gateway and you don't even realize how much you're getting out of them sometimes. Yep. Like these exactly. books. <gasps> <Ooh>. Thematic. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you? I know you um, made a point to call out the ravioli and coleslaw in your summary. So clearly that made an impression. Yeah, I mean, like, I know that the Pikes... And I, Don even explains, like, they basically have no rules. It's sort of, you know, just don't kill yourselves or hurt each other. And, you know, there's general overarching rules. But, like, the fact that it's just sort of like, oh, there's ravioli and coleslaw for lunch. And when Don describes what Christy, she opens, like, a cafeteria size can of ravioli. So I'm envisioning, uh-huh. like, I, when I was younger, I used to go, I went to daycare. And they had, like cafeteria style cans of like you know peaches or pears or whatever and they're like they're like bigger than a coffee can you know it's like a gallon of stuff in there and so I'm like envisioning this like you have to have a special kind of can opener to even like open them (laughs) and the fact that the pikes just have like industrial sized can openers to open their industrial sized coleslaw and ravioli is just like mind-boggling to me and I understand if you have a family of 10 you probably do that because you need to feed 10 people every day. Yep. But it's, you know, with my family of four growing up, it's just like so outside of the realm of possibility. And I never, as a kid, I liked ravioli. I did not like coleslaw. I tolerate coleslaw sometimes now as an adult if it doesn't have mayonnaise in it. But like the thought of eating those even at the same time, not necessarily mixed together, which one of the triplets does do. Yeah. It's just like revolting. That is the most disgusting, not the most disgusting, because I'm sure I could come up with worse combinations. But like right now in the front of my mind, that is the most disgusting thing I can think of eating like for dinner or something today. Like, no, thank you. It's just random and gross. And see, it's so funny because I knew you were going to have that reaction. And my reaction was like, yep, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Because I did grow up in a not nearly as big as the Pikes, but I'm one of four kids. So there were six of us. Um, and in my house, lunches were definitely all about like Mm -hmm. getting rid of leftovers. So we had so many weird ass flavor combination lunches and I always hated it. (laughs) It was always, it was stuff like ravioli and coleslaw. I was like, what was ever was leftover. Now we didn't have the like industrial size cafeteria style, um, canned ravioli. In fact, canned ravioli was not something that was common in our house. Canned my dad is a really good cook. My mom is a great baker. We we very rarely had overly processed mm-hmm. food like that. But my dad was, because he came from an even bigger family than the Pikes, he's one of 13, they were all about, you know, using every last bit of whatever they had. So he's, a. I appreciate it now as a grown-up, <laughs> how great he is at, like, taking whatever is in the, the fridge and, like, throwing it together and, and making a meal out of it. Um, but as a kid, I would be like, oh, my God, why can't you just make some spaghetti or something like a normal person? Why are we eating like half a pork chop and um, three days old baked beans? <laughs> <laughs> like 
just whatever yeah. was in the kitchen. So I, f I felt that to my core. <laughs> that was such yeah. a moment. Um, it was so, so when you called that out, I was like, oh, yep, <laughs> we, we, we had different experiences. Very like different. <laughs> one of the things that I really liked about this one, it's one of my favorite things to look out for is um, some of those literary techniques for teaching kids. And this one was really big on foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. So we're always... Um, they're always told from um, the past perspective as if, you know, the story is over and someone's telling it to us. Um, but this one, that's even more explicit. At the very beginning, it starts like with a with a big foreshadowing line. Let me see if I can find exactly what it was. But there were a couple other places, including one that's foreshadowing for next week or next episode, rather. And I, I thought that was interesting that they sort of leaned into that in this one in a way that was more obvious than some of the other ones. The book starts with a trip to the West Coast. It was the highlight of my spring, that's for sure. When I got to California, I had an absolutely fantastic time. So how come I ended up feeling so confused? Like that's the whole mm -hmm. book in that one sentence, um, which is way more explicit than the, that, that moment no, of the kicking things off normally gets. So I just thought that was, I don't know if it means anything in particular, but it was just something interesting to note that that um, was more heavily used mm -hmm. this time. Yeah. I also really enjoyed, and I think I even enjoyed it, like reading this, reading these books when I was younger. Anytime anyone flies anywhere and they describe what it used to be like to fly. Mm -hmm. And like, it just, because so obviously I mentioned in the, um, in the summary, you know, Jeff and Mr. Schaefer and Sunny are right there at the gate when Dawn gets to California. Mrs. Schaefer and all of the Babysitter's Club are right there at the gate when Dawn gets back to Connecticut. Um, Dawn has a window non-smoking seat on the plane. You know, they're selling um, headsets so you can watch the movie on the plane because they only show the one movie um you know she gets lunch on a flight out to california like you're lucky now if you get a bag of pretzels and a diet coke yeah it's just it's just so funny like obviously a lot of things have changed since 1989 um that have resulted in those changes to how traveling by plane works but it's just always fun to sort of like look back and be like oh wow yeah things were very different the one that really really jumped out at me was early on in the book dawn says that she's getting stressed out about her mom because she's always stressed out about her mom but she's like but mom thinks we can get to the airport five minutes before the plane leaves they're always late anyway and i was like oh it's a very different mm -hmm. world <laughs> it's a very different world um, can you imagine showing up to the airport five minutes before your plane's supposed to take off? That just, that gives me palpitations just thinking or about it. Or showing up with a pocket knife, like literally in your pocket. And like, obviously it's Jeff that does this when they're going to drop Dawn off at the airport and she says they get hung up at security. But it's like the fact that they didn't all like double check themselves to make sure that they didn't have anything, you know, like that Mr. Schaefer wouldn't be like, Jeff, make sure you don't bring your pocket knife to the airport with us because you can't come through security if you have it. Like just it. Yeah, it's just crazy to think that people just sort of were like, oh, yeah, let's go. Let's get to the airport. It's fine. <laughs> I'll hang out at the gate together. Yeah, right. Um, although the the not checking for contraband thing, that sadly holds up better than it should. The number of people who do not prepare before getting into that um, security line, even people who have known traveler numbers and are in the TSA pre-check, drives me absolutely bonkers. It was one of my pet peeves when I was traveling constantly mm -hmm. for work. 
that people would like show up to that line and be like, oh, I have to pull my laptop out. I'm like, oh my God, just have you, are you new? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's not fair because some people do not travel very often and don't know those. But yes, there have definitely been times when the person in front of me is like pulled out a whole ass knife and been like, what, I can't fly with this? I'm like, oh my God. No, you cannot. (laughs) Really cannot. But that is funny. I didn't even think about the fact that they, you know, they only showed the one movie and the serving of lunch. I had forgotten about, I just sort of in my head placed her in first class. That's why she was getting lunch. But no, she was just in a, you know, regular seat where everybody Mm -hmm. used to get lunch. Those were the days. So it was a Dawn episode. I didn't know much fashion, but did you have any um, fashion things to call Um, out? Not really. When Dawn's packing, she runs through a few of the things that she's going to bring with her. Um, A white cotton skirt, um, bathing suit, a bikini, and jeans and sneakers, and yellow cotton overalls, and three sundresses and she's questioning like do I need all of these things should I bring them she brings everything we get two references (laughs) to the fact that Christy literally always wears jeans sneakers and a turtleneck clover and daffodil wear hand-woven cotton vests that their mom made for them because she's a weaver like (laughs) yeah not a ton Um, of like crazy I love that family yes I love I love the Austin family which they live next door because I let me I have to find the quote about their house Okay. I always loved the Austin's house, especially the living room. Mrs. Austin is a weaver. Dad said when they were young, she and her husband used to be flower children. I think they means hippies. That's why Clover and Daffodil have such odd names. Now, though, Mrs. Austin weaves professionally for a few stores that carry expensive handcrafted goods, and she has three different sized looms in her living room. The looms sit on the polished wood floor underneath a big bay window. I love to take a look at what she's working on. She mostly makes pieces with deep, rich, natural colors, beautiful warm browns and earthy reds, and there's always something different on the looms. Like, what? So I totally loved, uh, like a couple of paragraphs later, she's talking to the mom and the mom says that, you know, she never has to redecorate because the whole feeling of the room changes based on Mm -hmm. the piece she's working on. And that was such an evocative moment. And I was like, oh, yes, I love that. Um, And at the same time, the other thing I couldn't help but think of is that really does place these books solidly in a period Mm -hmm. of time where you could go from being a hippie love child to a corporate you know, selling your art into wealthy people to live a, a nice, comfortable life. That is the most 60s to 80s transition <laughs> um, that, you know, I don't know would uh, make quite as much sense. Uh, what Because what would be, it would be like the 90s to today would be this that shift. And there weren't a lot of hippies in the right. 90s. It was more grunge. Um, that would, Now I'm like trying to picture what that, that, what that big shift would look like. I'm coming up with yeah. nothing. So I will call um, I will call out briefly that, um, again, they do a pretty good job of keeping things time neutral overall. However, we they do date this one very specifically as spring break. So we don't have like – it used to be in the early on books, they would say like the Thursday before whatever the – you know, they, they mm-hmm. would place it in time a little bit more specifically – And we still don't get that, but we do know we're in spring, so I think we're rapidly coming up to the end of the school year, which makes sense, which will bring us to our next super special coming up pretty quickly Mm -hmm. here, actually. So then I think from there, it's the summer um, super special, and then I think we just go back and start eighth grade all over again. 
I think that you are correct because um, I can't get through an episode without referencing it. <laughs> Christie's Mystery Admirer <laughs> does have a Halloween dance in it. So that yes, would be. because I do know we noted that. Yeah. So that would make sense timeline wise with the circular nature of this series that we have noted in the past and we'll continue to note because it's super random. We're going to creep ever closer to Christy and the Mystery Admirer and I don't know what we're going to do with ourselves when we're past that point. (laughs) We won't have that to point to as a compass anymore. Well, because and eventually we're going to hit the point where neither of us have read any of the books that are left, which I think is going to be exactly that's going to be an even crazier off the horizon. (laughs) But we have a ways to go. So we'll get there eventually. So any other random thoughts about this one? I was just going to say, I think that's a perfect transition into seeing what we remember about next week's book, Christy and the Mother's Day Surprise. Well, you already alluded to it. The big surprise is that Edie and Watson adopt Emily Michelle, which is uh, Christy's soon-to-be baby sister, who I think is Vietnamese. Am I remembering that correct? I want to say Vietnamese, yes, but I... or. Or Chinese. I think this was definitely the era of a lot of babies being adopted from China because I think it was especially a girl mm-hmm. um, would be the one child policy that that would make sense. So I'm not positive. I, I will not I, I won't commit either way. But I know an Asian yes. adoptee. That's all I remember specifically. Yeah. And that's really all I but remember. Yeah, yeah. That's all I remember too. <laughs> I was going to say that I remember that and only that. And I don't remember the specifics. I do remember it happening very quickly. Like they just sort of mention it and then mm-hmm. here she is. And um, so I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about the adoption process and For how sure. that works. But spoiler, spoiler alert, I feel like the answer is going to be money. Right. Um, so, but yes, I don't remember anything else other than Emily Michelle. So I mentioned briefly, like like you said, Kate, earlier on, there was foreshadowing. And in this case, it was um, during Christie's babysitting. Or actually, it was Jesse babysitting the Brewer Watsons. And when they come back, it's to, you know, some relative amount of chaos that the the older boys have caused with the the Bren Brewer pr- pranks. And Christy's mom says, oh, I want another child. What I wonder what bringing that into this chaos would be yeah. or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact line. But I was like, oh, wow, we're not being even a little bit subtle here. Um, so I, I'm trying to remember as a kid. I don't remember at all. I can't put myself in that. If I was, like, prepared for that, if I had caught that, um, or if this next book came as a surprise. But... I can't Mm -hmm. wait to get into it. Me too. Okay, so any other final club business? Why don't you just remind everybody where to find us? Yeah. So if you want to communicate with us more, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at GenerationBSC. Or if you have things that maybe don't fit quite so well in comments or DMs, you can email us at GenerationBSC at gmail.com. So with that, I'm Kate Vlasic. And I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say hello to your friends.